Well, it's a delight to uh, be with all of you this morning. I have prayed often uh, for your pastor, his family, and this church uh, for a number of years, so I'm glad to be here. Uh, It's always good to see folks that you get to pray for, and I'm thankful for uh, the grace that has been shown to all of you in, in these years in seeking after the Lord and seeking to be a people that love Christ and follow after him and serve him in faithfulness. I'm very grateful for friendship with Pastor Samuel. He, I, I count him as a, a dear brother and a partner in ministry. And I'm, I'm glad to be able to represent the Pillar Network uh, and finally preach in a Pillar Church for the first time uh, as a member of the staff. So I'm, I'm glad to uh, be part of this time with you. If you will, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 10. What Peter does in these opening chapter, uh, in this opening chapter is to set forth a Trinitarian understanding of the way the Lord saves us. And you, you see that immediately uh, in verse 1. He identifies his scattered people uh, in ancient Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And so he, he's kind of doing a road map, starting at the Black Sea and working his way down into the middle and then working back up to the Black Sea again. And he says, "...who were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father." by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. You see that Trinitarian work, what is happening before the foundation of the world and what is happening in time, as we read together that statement from the New Hampshire Confession, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God coming and awakening dead sinners to life and bringing us to that point where we go, oh, this is the gospel. And we see, and we repent, and we believe, and that has been accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does the Lord Jesus do? He brings us into obedience to him. Now, this is going to be important for where we're heading in this passage and really where the entire epistle goes. He does the same thing in verse 3. He, he repeats this Trinitarian work of the Father and inferring the Holy Spirit and certainly talking about the Son and what he's doing and bringing us into this lively hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God, protected by the power of God, through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He does that. Then he starts talking about suffering and trials. And he, he doesn't say, don't, and just, just slough it off and act like it's not there. He doesn't do that. He says, see what God is doing intentionally in your life, working in your faith so that your faith may be tested and may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And by that, he means the coming Jesus Christ. And this is important because he keeps referring to it. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now but believe in him, 
you rejoice greatly with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now in verse 10, as to this salvation, he's not taking up a new subject. He's just saying, let, let me give you further explanation. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person and time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Therefore, okay, when you see that, you know he's drawing a conclusion because of what this great God has done. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy Spirit who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the word of God. May you write its eternal truth upon our hearts. Lots of believers struggle with how to live as Christians. And, and, and these struggles sometimes make them wonder, am I really a Christian? And of course, there are a lot of people that never struggle at all who call themselves Christians, and in all likelihood, they're just not. Because the reality of living in this fallen world is that we are going to face struggles. And so what I want us to think about and focus on are those who are genuinely born of God and they're seeking to live out the Christian life. And that genuineness is evident by desiring to be obedient, by hating their sin, by wanting to follow Jesus faithfully, by loving the cross and the resurrection, and longing to be consistent in devotion to Christ and walking with him and being used of him. But we struggle. We struggle with consistency. I remember as a young Christian, these struggles, and not just young, but going on for a few years. And early on, I fell into the trap of legalism and trying to live the Christian life. I thought if I did more, if I tried harder, and I lived with more rigidity, then I would be a holy person and gain God's approval. I was not only difficult to be around, but I failed to see that Jesus is enough. And then a few years after that, I encountered what is called the deeper life movement or to get a little technical, the Keswick movement. And its emphasis was on confession of sin, which is good. And upon living in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, which is really good. But the downfall was trying to reach this level of consecration and yieldedness that was shown in some people who were the speakers and some who were writing books and trying to somehow or another reach this state in which I would be approved by God because of my level of yieldedness to him. 
I, I never knew how much more I needed to be yielded to the Lord. I never knew how many more sins I had to confess. I never knew what levels of consecration it would take to live in peace. And so I failed again to see that Jesus is enough, just like the gospel promise. Then a few years after that, I encountered the charismatic movement with its emphasis on experiences. Now, experiential Christianity is very important. The Puritans so helped us with this. Back in the 17th century, we're still reading their books and profiting from this and how we need to live the experience of the Christian life. We're not blocks of wood. But experiences, plural, whether it's what is often called the second blessing or speaking in tongues or being slain in the spirit or some other phenomena associated with this movement falls into the same trap. Jesus and his gospel are not enough. You've got to have some other kind of experience. And so people clamor to go to conferences and, and get in groups so that they can find more and more. I'm thankful the Lord liberated me from that, but even tinkering with it sidetracked me from the sufficiency that is in the crucified, risen, and reigning Lord Jesus. Have you been there? Maybe are you there right now? And you're struggling with consistency, you're frustrated with ups and downs, and you're wrestling with inconsistency, and you've grown despondent in a failure in your spiritual disciplines and in obedience to the Lord? Well, the answer is not in legalism. It's not in some deeper life or new experiences. The answer to that is found in Jesus Christ and the promises that are in the gospel. The Holy Spirit calls us and enables us to live in Christ and live in this gospel. By word and spirit, the gospel changes us to live in hope and holiness. That's what we see in this text. Now, you know that the gospel of the crucified and risen Lord changes us. You, you, you know that. And you if you're a follower of Christ, you have experienced measures of this change towards Christ-likeness. But the Word, by the Spirit, is calling us to live in this gospel. But how do we do that? How do we see ongoing transformation by the gospel of Christ? That's what I want us to think about under two headings, Word and Spirit, and then hope and holiness. First, Word and Spirit. Now, what Bible did Peter carry around? Well, he probably didn't, couldn't carry anything around, but he had the Old Testament. I mean, they, had, they were written on scrolls, so he couldn't go around with a big bundle of scrolls. Uh, but he, he had the Old Testament scriptures, and yet in and through these Old Testament scriptures, he saw and understood the gospel of Jesus Christ. He didn't divide this new revelation in Christ from the old revelation under Moses and the prophets. Instead, just as Jesus taught the disciples and others, Peter saw Christ and the good news of the gospel in all of Scripture. You remember what Jesus said in John 5, 39. You search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. What Scriptures was Jesus talking about? All they had then 
was the Old Testament scriptures. And that's what Peter has in mind as he writes this letter. And so this, this same gospel taught at least in embryo form, pointing, aiming, not in all of its fullness, but preparing this same gospel he refers to in verse 10 as to this salvation. And so what he's doing, he's keeping us in the same context of the triune God making himself known through Jesus Christ. And so Peter introduces how we live as Christians by the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. And he's emphasizing that the Christian life doesn't begin in us. It begins in the gracious work of the Father who puts his horizon of love and grace around us and the Holy Spirit regenerating and sanctifying us and the Lord Jesus bringing us into a life of obedience by his bloody death and resurrection. And so Peter keeps this same kind of pattern throughout this epistle. You know, when the apostles wrote letters, they were giving instructions. Here's some things for you to do. But they didn't begin that way. They always started with, this is what God has done. And because of what God has done, because of the promises that you are now living in, walk in obedience. There's a huge difference in that and seeing a list of rules and regulations and things we're supposed to do and trying our best to do it and getting frustrated. And so what Peter does, he, he sets forth for us what God promised from the very foundation of the world. And instead of immediately commanding actions, instead he's steering us to meditate on the grace of God at work and saving and sustaining us and keeping us and bringing us into his presence forever. And out of this, we gladly obey. So how do you live faithfully as Christians? You learn to live in what God has done for you in Christ. And we see this in several ways. First, that the gospel is not new. The gospel has been around. Peter is declaring that, this salvation of your souls that he talks about in verses 3 through 9. And now he picks back up on, uh, upon what this salvation means in verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Now, the grace that would come to you is a large statement referring to the entire work of salvation, that it's all of grace. All that God does, it's all of grace. Grace means I'm not contributing. The Lord God is doing this. I'm on the receiving end. He's the giver of grace. And so he talks about grace preachers. And who is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the prophets. He's talking about Moses and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Hosea and Micah and many, many more. And really, throughout the Old Testament, even in the narrative and wisdom portions of the Old Testament, there is this prophetic aim in that they are pointing forward to the fullness that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we, we read the Old Testament. We don't see everything that we see in the New Testament, obviously. But we see the foundation laid, and we see how it is aiming toward him and culminating in him. Now, did 
All these Old Testament prophets understand and grasp that Jesus would be the Messiah and what he would do in all the details. No, verse 10 says they made careful searches and inquiries because they saw the beauty and the glory of this gospel in embryo and they wanted to see more of what God was doing. They didn't see the whole picture. They caught glimpses. They experienced measures of grace. They preached the gospel, which is what Hebrews 4.2 tells us that they were doing. They were preaching the good news, and they realized there was more than the parting of the Red Sea or the land of Israel or the sacrificial system or the temple. They saw there was more, and so they believed in the Lord with that revelation that he gave them. And they prophesied a future grace that blossomed in the covenant, this new covenant that is in Jesus Christ. Jesus told the disciples, Matthew 13, verses 16 and 17, Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men, think Moses and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah, and Obadiah, many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. You see what Jesus is doing? He's saying what they talked about was pointing to me. Now, keep that in mind because this is laying a foundation for how do we live the Christian life. Second, there's gospel continuity. The gospel is not new, but there's gospel continuity. It was Jesus who was actively working in and through these ancient prophets. We see this in verses 10 to 11 and how these prophets made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Now, Peter calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ. We see that in other places in the New Testament as well. And so he's continuing this with this Trinitarian emphasis in, in, in these verses. And he's really echoing what you see in the upper room discourse in John 14 through 16. You see in this beauty of the Holy Spirit who brings Christ to us. And so the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating something. And this is, is showing the pre-existence of our Lord. He didn't just suddenly come on the scene, never before existed at the, at the point of his birth. No, he is the eternal God. And this eternal God was working in the minds and hearts of these Old Testament saints to reveal himself and give a glimpse of the coming of the Messiah. Now, notice the redemptive anticipation that these Old Testament prophets had. What, what were they trying to find they were trying to find out about the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow what's the New Testament about the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow the death and resurrection and reign of our Lord Jesus Christ now this this gives us such an important point of how we read our Bibles when you go to the Old Testament, do you read that and go, well, that's the old stuff. I don't really need to pay much attention to it. I need to really get to the good stuff in the New Testament. If we do that, we impoverish our spiritual lives. What this is telling us, we have to read the Old Testament with Christological lens, 
with gospel thinking lens. We have to read it and see how were these Old Testament writers pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ? How were they revealing him? What were they showing? So we should seek to understand how the Holy Spirit worked in these writers so that they prophesied of the grace that would come. They were preaching the grace of God to latter generations. Now, what does this look like practically? Uh, Pastor Samuel, I have a good friend in Chattanooga, Tennessee, by the name of David King, who's been pastoring at Concord Baptist Church there for many years. And he, he did a wonderful book that, uh, that's entitled, Your Old Testament Sermons Need to Get Saved. Uh, I love that title because he's making the point. When we read the Old Testament, we need to be looking and seeing, how is this pointing us to Christ? And Pastor David gives six ways, and I, I'm just going to toss these out, make a brief comment on them. Uh, th this would do for a long, long study and thinking, and, uh, but it, this is something just to help you to, to consider. First, he talks about prophetic promise. This means there are those points in the Old Testament where there is some particular promise. Uh, for instance, in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Now, was that about snake killing? Or was that about something bigger? That was about Jesus. Or uh, to uh, Abraham in Genesis 12.3, that out of your seed, out of your descendant, the nations will be blessed. Who's he talking about? Uh, was he talking about Levi, Judah, Simeon? No. He's pointing to Jesus. And boy, Paul brings this out so beautifully in Galatians and in Romans. And so the, these prophetic promises are pointing us to Christ. Second is ethical instruction. Think about the law and the wisdom writing and how you read those laws and you read these, these whole uh, teachings on the wisdom and knowledge and understanding and we think mm, we're so deficient in all these areas. But what did Jesus say? I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill it. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. Jesus Christ has fulfilled all this ethical instruction. Third is fallen humanity. When, when you look at sinners, how do sinners, whether they were in the Old Testament era or in the present era, how will sinners be forgiven and reconciled to God? The writer of, of Hebrews reminds us, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Can't do it. How's it going to happen? It's going to happen through Christ. And so as you read those passages, it's pointing forward. Or uh, typological, fourth, typological revelation. Sometimes there are shadows and patterns. You've got Adam, the first Adam, and Paul talks about Jesus in Romans 5 being the second Adam. You've got the temple, and then you have Jesus who came, and John 1 says that he tabernacled among us. He became the very dwelling of God, revealing God. And, uh, uh, and then fifth, you've got narrative progression, the storyline of redemption. So you read about the Day of Atonement and the high priest going in and sprinkling blood upon the, the mercy seat. Then he has to do it again the next year. 
and the next and the next. Why? Because it was just pointing. And so that when you read those passages, you need to stop and go, glory. Look what Christ has done. Those priests, year after year after year, century after century, all that they did couldn't take away sin. But they were just pointing, just priming things, getting ready for that day when Christ would come. And then uh, six, there are those theological themes. So you read in the Old Testament about atonement and righteousness and judgment and forgiveness. How's all that going to happen? It's pointing to Jesus Christ. Now that's too quick, too thumbnail. But as you read through the scripture, you, you see these Old Testament writers were setting forth these truths. Did they understand all of it? I mean, did Abraham and Moses fully grasp the massive work that Jesus would take on himself in his death and resurrection? I don't think so, but they sure wanted to know more. They knew it was bigger than they were, and so they wrote more than they understood. And yet in that, they relied upon the gospel promises that God gave them. And the same could be said for David and Isaiah writing of the suffering servant. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel writing of the new covenant. And Micah writing of the birth of, uh, of the Lord Jesus, of the Christ in Bethlehem. Or uh, Zechariah writing of him being the branch that had been cut off and now sprang forth there. So these Old Testament writers were pointing forward to the coming of the Son of God. Think about how Isaiah 7 prophesied that the virgin would conceive and bear a son whose name would be called Emmanuel. Or Isaiah 53, that, his, uh, that Jesus would take our suffering on himself on the cross. He would be our substitute. The Lord laid on him the iniquities of us all. Or Psalm 16, that you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. He would be raised from the dead and he would be exalted as Lord. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession in Psalm 2. You see, Jesus made himself known to and through these Old Testament writers. And while these prophets did their work faithfully, verse 12, uh, Peter tells us it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves. But who were they serving? You. They were not serving themselves, but you in these things which have now uh, been uh, given and, and written for us, these things into which uh, that have come to us by the Holy Spirit, things into which the angels long to look. Now, notice that this idea of being revealed means the Lord revealed to them, and he said to them, not now. But Lord, we want to know more. No, not now. It is for you to set this forth for another people. One day you'll see it all. But they believed what they saw and they trusted the Lord as their righteousness. Now, God changes us through this gospel proclaimed in embryonic fashion in, uh, uh, in the Old Testament scriptures and now revealed in its fullness in the New Testament in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so... Do you read the Old Testament scriptures with a view to seeing how they set the stage for the coming of Jesus and his redemptive work?
Do you see the sacrificial system and the tabernacle and the temple and the high priest and the prophets and the kings? They were just shadows. Jesus is the substance. It's one of the great themes in the book of Hebrews where that writer talks about all these shadowy things and their fullness is in the Lord Jesus. Now, if the Lord would take such care of details like that centuries ago so that you and I would have the revelation of his word declaring the certainty of the sufficiency of the grace of God in Christ, would he provide any less for you in your day-to-day challenges to walk with Christ? I mean, would he instruct Moses and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah to write about the grace of God if grace was not adequate for you to live in Jesus right now? The gospel encompasses the Old Testament scriptures so that we might build our lives on the good news of Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. The third thing we see in this word and spirit is gospel proclamation. So Peter moves from the written word to the proclaimed word. We see this in verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which have now been announced to you, an emphasis on now, now been announced to you, through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. Now, he still hadn't commanded us to do anything. But what he has done, he's, he's telling us what God has done. So he hasn't given any imperatives, but he's given a lot of indicatives. And what I mean by that, he hasn't given any commands as yet, but he's given lots of explanations, these indicatives of what God has done in Christ in our salvation. And that's the biblical foundation. That is how we live the Christian life. Not looking at all the commands and saying, I've got to do all this. It's looking, what has God done in Christ? How has he worked savingly in you? What has he promised you? And out of that, God has given grace so that you enjoy those commands. They become part of your life. Sinclair Ferguson, who's written a wonderful book called Devoted to God that addresses these issues, says that we have this bent to create our own personal brand of Christianity and thereby we miss out on what God is doing in sanctifying us in Christ. And he says we will then tend to fall into the trap of being guided by our own thoughts and feelings when what we need most is to be anchored to the basic foundation stones that Scripture sets in place here are the foundation stone god doesn't first come to you and give you a bunch of commands instead he says look what i've done for you and my son here is your life here's how you're going to live for me it's not going to be about all the stuff you do you're not going to gain any standing with god like that but instead hear the word of god read the word of god value the word of god Be grateful for those that God has raised up to proclaim the gospel to you and receive that word. Notice a couple of things in this regard. For preaching to be biblical, it must be gospel preaching. For preaching to be biblical, it must be gospel preaching. There's this tight connection that is 
being made uh, in, in verses 10 through 12 where he talks about these things, uh, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, the suffering and glories to follow of the Christ, which now have been proclaimed to you. So what he's doing, he's looking back at the Old Testament revelation, and now he's thinking about the proclamation of the gospel. He says, these things that have been announced to you are about Christ. These things, he's using Christological language. He's helping us to think these things, this gospel-centered Old Testament are, is now being proclaimed in the preaching of the gospel by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So the content of gospel preaching at that point came from the Old Testament scriptures. They didn't have the New Testament yet. But that didn't stop those early preachers from preaching the gospel from the Old Testament. All you got to do is read the book of Acts and see that. Or read the epistles and see that. Or read the four gospels and see that over and over and over. We see these Old Testament scriptures referred to. Their biblical preaching was gospel preaching for they saw the Jesus-centeredness of the Old Testament and they refused to look at the Old Testament as merely history lessons or moral admonitions. They preached Jesus from the law, the narratives, the wisdom writings, and the prophets. As David King says, if a preacher fails to interpret and apply the Old Testament in light of Christ, his Old Testament preaching will inevitably be sub-Christian. And if that's true of the Old Testament, it's even more true of the New Testament. If we fail to preach Christ, if we fail to see Christ as central to the whole of Scripture, then our preaching and our understanding fails to be Christian. And that kind of failure leads us to therapeutic moralism and legalistic methods to try to somehow or another live for God. And it doesn't happen like that if we will be transformed by the Lord. A second thing, gospel preaching must be empowered by the Holy Spirit. There's, a, there's an emphasis on word and spirit. Notice that he, he says in verse 12, who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. I certainly believe in, in studying and being educated and working hard that's part of the responsibility for those who, who are teaching the word. But more important than anything is the power and work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Peter is affirming for us. The Holy Spirit is pleased to grant power when the gospel is proclaimed. If the gospel is not rooted in what is being taught, the Holy Spirit is not interested in that. And one can craft a very fine lesson, very fine sermon, but if it's not gospel and its foundation, dependency, and aim, the Spirit has nothing to do with that. Now, some may think, well, then preaching will all be the same. We'll, we'll just talk about getting saved. It's going to neglect other passages. Peter would disagree, and I hope you disagree, because the gospel, what Jesus has done, is far deeper and stretches far wider and goes far longer than we can fathom. 
So before he ever gives the first imperative, what you need to be doing, he says, I want you to see what God has done. Then in verse 13, he gives that therefore. It is in that gospel in which we plunge our lives in dependence upon the Lord who died and rose again that we're able to walk in obedience. It is that gospel that brings us back to trusting Christ and its fruitfulness work out of us. For this reason, treasure and pray for and attentively listen to gospel-centered proclamation of the word. It is essential for your spiritual walk. It feeds your souls upon Christ if we would live in hope and holiness. And that brings us to the second part of this text, hope and holiness. We, we go through this journey of the sufficiency of, script, of Scripture and preaching of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit to see how critical it is that our behavior is rooted in what we believe about the gospel. Otherwise, we tend to rely upon ourselves to try to achieve some kind of level of performance in the Christian life rather than the Christian life being an overflow of the work of Christ and people filled with gratitude and depending upon him. And so what we're doing, we're emphasizing in this text that while, yes, we want to follow those imperatives, those commands in, in living the Christian life, we do that by living in the indicatives or the explanations of what God has done in Christ. Indicatives precede imperatives. If you reverse it, you fall into legalism and pseudo-spirituality and spiritual bondage. But learn to live in what Christ has done. And you know the freedom of life in Christ. And that affects the way we think and the way we live. Notice first about the way we think. He talks about hope in verse 12. Hope is living in future grace if we would be spiritually minded. Verse 12 has the therefore, therefore. So he's calling attention to what he's already talked about. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Now, if you, you, you look at this, and it sounds like a command, and the way the translations go, it often appears that way. And there, there's some imperative command type of tone in it, but this is really a participle that is connected to the command in this text, which is fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's basically saying, let me give you a couple of warm-ups. First, fix or prepare your mind for action. Uh, it, it's a metaphor that literally means to, uh, to gird up your hips, to gird up your loins. And uh, those fellows in the first century would have worn these long linen or wool shirts it wasn't very good for working or running, so they would pull them up and they would put them, tuck them into their belt. He says, you need to do that mentally. You need to do that spiritually. You need to sharpen your minds. Be spiritually alert. Don't be bogged down by spiritual neglect. Prepare for spiritual battles. Apply the gospel in your life. Be conscious of thoughtfully meditating upon the promises of God in the gospel. And then he talks about how... This gospel hope develops by being sober in spirit. Again, he uses another metaphor. Keep sober in spirit. We, we could say, does that mean don't get drunk? Well, certainly that's implied in that, but there's more implied 
because it means don't be dulled or intoxicated by the world around you. Uh, you know, we, we've got all kinds of distractions, whether it's social media or entertainment or a thousand other things that could distract us. Uh, we have all kinds of sinful things alluring us, but it's not just sinful things that can dull us. Sometimes it's good things, wonderful gifts of God. It could be pastoring a church. There's a lot of pastors that get dull in the middle of doing the most wonderful thing in the world because they set their affections upon pastoring instead of upon, uh, upon Christ. It might be going on a vacation. What a gift from the Lord to be able to do that. But we let our minds get dull because we so focus our attention on that. Or it might be our work or it might be our sports. It might be a thousand other things. He's calling us to mental alertness to sensitivity to the things of Christ. Enjoy that vacation. Enjoy pastoring that church. Enjoy going on that trip. Enjoy eating that meal, whatever it is. Do all that with gratitude to the Lord. But here's the command. Fix your hope on future grace. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, he's talking about the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's referring to when Christ returns. The very first command that Peter gives to these scattered saints living in modern-day Turkey, the very first command, he says, I want you to think about, I want you to fix your mind, I want you to just rivet in your mind the grace that is going to be yours when Jesus Christ returns. How do you live the Christian life? You've got to look at future grace. This has been an area that I think I've neglected far, far too much in my Christian life. You know, I like present grace, and there's plenty of that. But here he's saying, fix your minds on this future grace. Learn to live in anticipation of what God has done in Christ. You see, we're, we're not simply to be living in the present. But we're to set our hope, and our, our hope is this internal homing device for what we treasure most in the world. Fix it upon Christ. We're learning to see Christ as the hope of glory. We're learning to live on what Jesus has secured in his death and resurrection. We're thinking of the day when there is no more sin, and there, there are no more inconsistencies, and there's no more despondency over our failures. There's no more satanic opposition. And so he says... Fix your hope upon that. You're not living pie in the sky. No, you're living in the promises of God. You're living in the certainty that when Jesus Christ returns, he will give you an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, that will not be, uh, fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And by the way, you're being kept by the power of God so that you might enjoy that forever. And so he says, the richness of future grace is overshadowing the impoverishments of the present through hope in Christ we filter the present sufferings and challenges to live in the Lord Jesus and then second is holiness verse 14 this is experiencing the character of the gospel of grace at work now if our thinking is affected by the gospel so that we're fixing our hope on the grace that it's to be brought to us when Christ returns then our living is to be affected by our being, as verse 14 says, obedient children. And that, that is an idiom that means that we're to be characterized by obedience. That is to be part of our nature 
because now we have a new nature in Christ. God has put his nature in us, which is humbling that this great God would look at us as sinners and be gracious and save us, put his nature in us so that as we become obedient children, we begin to follow after his desires. We begin to grow in our affections for him. And this is countercultural. He writes in verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust. Literally, don't let the former lust, the former way that you, that you pursued your life, don't let that control you, which were yours in your ignorance. So how do you do that? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 8, by the Spirit, we're to put to death the deeds of the, of the body. Uh, he, he tells us in Ephesians uh, 4 that we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and we are to uh, be thinking differently. We're to keep putting on the new self that has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. In Romans 12, he tells us, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Uh, th that in itself is even an act of worship. In Romans 13, he says, put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh. In other words, we're giving attention to our spiritual life. Uh, our spiritual life. We're thinking, I want to be more like Christ. I want Christ formed in me. I want my life and the way I am at home, the way I'm at work, at school, in my recreation, wherever I am, I want my life to reflect Christ. That's what he's talking about. That's really what holiness is. It is the life of Christ being reflected in us. And so he's not talking about something passive here, but he's also not saying you're going to gain approval with God and standing with God if you'll be more holy. You're already holier than you can ever be in Christ. He is your holiness. He is your life. And so it is, the, the gospel is declaring that you are secure in Christ, but now the overflow of that life, as verse 15 says, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you are to be holy, for I am holy. So as a holy person, you're separated unto the Lord. You belong to him. You turn from feeding your mind and uh, own and giving your life to evil. You consciously seek to live as one who belongs to the Lord. And you live a life other than the life you lived before you knew the Lord. Because that's really what holiness is. It's otherness. And that otherness is life in another. It is in the Lord himself. You can't manufacture that. Instead, we are holy people because he is holy. And now he's saying, let that holiness live out. Let that life of Christ live out. Let that purity and that beauty of the life of Christ be evident in you. And so he commands the way we think Fix your hope and the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. He commands the way we live, be holy like the one who called you is holy. He said that's what it means to be a Christian, to live like a Christian. But how does it start? Not in what you do. It starts in the grace of God working in you, bringing you to Christ, and you by faith are repenting and believing in him, and he comes to invade your life and he comes to take over and to rule and reign so that your life 
might evidence his life. God has given us enough in Jesus Christ to live as Christians. You don't have to go working something up. You don't have to go scrambling off somewhere to some new experience. Jesus is enough. That's what Peter's saying. Do you believe that? Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that in these moments as we reflect upon your word that you will help us to see Jesus in all of his sufficiency as life himself. We pray that you will enable us in these moments to look to you, to trust in you, to live life in Christ, to not get the imperatives ahead of the indicatives, to see what you have done for us in Christ. We pray for those among us who are unbelieving. We ask that you would be merciful and open their eyes to see Jesus in all of his beauty and glory and saving power and repent and trust you and work in them. Lord, grant your blessing upon your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.